To binge all episodes of The Killing Month, August 1978, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode contains descriptions of violence and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. On October 24, 1978, Bruce Johnston Jr. was brought to one of the preliminary hearings for the case against the Johnston gang at the Chester County Courthouse. He was brought by helicopter. It landed in a nearby cornfield. Journalist Julia Cass was there to cover the story for the Philadelphia Inquirer. The Inquirer had a photograph of it. He was had a coat over his head so that he, you know, nobody could really see who he was. The gang leader's son had been in witness protection since the ambush of August 30th, 1978, that killed his girlfriend and riddled his body with bullets. At this point, in October of 1978, the Kitty Gang was still missing. Their bodies had not yet been found. Just to be clear, Junior was not on his way to a trial. This was a preliminary hearing where the judge would determine whether or not there was enough evidence to proceed with the case against the Johnstons for theft and for the ambush. So... There was Junior, getting off the helicopter with a coat over his head, like the media didn't know who he was. He was surrounded by federal agents and state troopers armed with long guns. They hustled him into a back room at the courthouse until it was time to come into the courtroom and testify against his father and his uncles. That was the first time it was clear to the public that his father had done it, or that he was saying his father had done it. It was now clear this was not just a story about murder. This was a father-son story. In her reporting from that hearing in October 1978, Julia Cass described Junior as looking dazed and near tears and nervously rubbing his neck. Junior referred to Bruce Johnston Sr. throughout the hearing as my dad. Everyone wanted something from Junior, and all he wanted was to be done with all of it. Former state police officer Tom Cloud remembers watching Junior during one of those preliminary hearings. And he says, look, he says, these guys pointing to his father and uncles want to kill me. And these guys, pointing to us, want to put me in jail. You know, he's between a rock and a hard spot. You know, if you think about the upbringing, you know, that they have, think about the upbringing you have, it has a result. It has an impact. My dad, Bill Lamb, was also feeling the pressure of tangling with the Johnstons. I was issued a firearm by the by the county detectives when I was district attorney and started carrying it 
when all this stuff erupted. When I say carrying it, I had my briefcase, you know. I would take it to work and then take it home and keep it in the bedroom if I needed it. My dad is pretty casual about all this. And back in the late 70s, I do remember my dad keeping a gun by his bed just in case someone decided to come after him or our family. It was our reality when I was growing up, and especially during the Johnston investigation and trials. And it wasn't just the prosecution or law enforcement that was threatened. The community was scared enough already about this group of thugs, thieves, murderers, you know, roaming the community. You know, that's all that was on people's minds. There was a great concern, I think on everybody's part, that we had to get this right. There was no substitute for a guilty verdict. This had gone on long enough with this group, and we had to put them to bed, so to speak, and get that done. This group my dad's referring to, this gang of brothers, included... David was the most dangerous one in the entire family. David would kill you in a heartbeat. He was bad news, very bad news. That's Charlie Zagorski, former Chief Chester County Detective. Charlie also remembers Norman Johnston. He'd kill you too, but uh, he, he was more jovial and happy-go-lucky. And the ringleader. Bruce, he always thought, you know, he was Don Corleone. You know, he was in charge and you do what I say. I guess for their survival, they would do anything and they didn't care who they had to kill. Believe me, these people, uh, they, they were different. They were different. Were you afraid of them? Oh, I was concerned. Let me tell you something. I, I was concerned, but I knew we were going to get them, and they knew we were going to get them. The brothers were finally behind bars, awaiting trial. This time, investigators and prosecutors vowed to make sure they had the evidence to keep the Johnstons there forever. I'm Amanda Lamb. From WREL Studios, this is The Killing Month, August 1978. The story of a family crime empire that came crumbling down when the bodies started piling up. David Johnston was arrested on December 12th. On December 13th, Bruce Sr. and Norman and their wives, Susan and Carol, were arrested trying to steal several 8-track stereo tapes. According to police, Bruce Sr. had tucked an Engelbert Humperdinck tape worth $8 into his pocket. Bruce Sr. and Norman ran from the store, but both eventually got caught. Obviously, these are minor charges compared to the murders of Robin Miller and members of the Kitty Gang. But police wanted the Johnstons in custody any way they could get them. 
because investigators were building an even bigger case, and they wanted to keep the brothers in jail and under their watchful eye. And it worked. By the end of January 1979, the brothers were in custody and facing multiple murder charges for the death of Robin Miller, the three members of the Kitty Gang whose bodies were found in the mass grave, and Jimmy Sampson, who was buried in the landfill and never found. Bruce Sr. faced an additional charge of murder for the shooting death of Gary Crouch in 1977, the original case that was responsible for bringing the Johnston's House of Cards down. They also faced a long list of related charges, including one for the attempted murder of Bruce Jr. During the time of the murders, the death penalty in Pennsylvania had actually been temporarily suspended due to legal challenges. So the Johnstons were not facing death sentences. My father, Bill Lamb, was no longer district attorney, but since he knew so much about the complex investigation, he was appointed special prosecutor for the case. With all the publicity about the murders, there needed to be a change of venue, and the trial was moved to a small town called Ebensburg in Cambria County, about 225 miles away from Chester County. This was a huge logistical challenge that involved relocating all the people involved to Cambria County and flying witnesses back and forth on a small plane my father jokingly called change of venue airlines. The local jury was sequestered and only able to read the newspaper after officers cut out articles about the case. While they weren't privy to the news coverage of the case, the jurors could certainly tell what was at stake and just how dangerous the situation was by how seriously the court officials ramped up the security for the trial. Forewarned is forearmed. We had had enough experience with this group of killers that you never knew uh, how many cohorts they had hanging around out there that were willing to do things. And you go back to, we mentally connected the Johnsons to the Ansel Ham case, and you go back to that, and you know, there were no boundaries. They would do anything. We told you about the Ansel Ham case in episode two. It involved the 1972 murders of two police officers in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. The Johnsons were not charged in the murders, but many people believed they had helped carry it out, especially members of law enforcement, who knew their badges could mean they were potential targets of the gang, just like the Kennett Square officers had been. And Judge Sugarman also seemed to be worried about a potential attack. He insisted that steel plates be put inside the bench for his protection. And there was a sweep done of the, uh, of the courtroom every morning and every time after lunch. Security was very, very, uh, very, very heavy. Let's put it that way. The 135-year-old Cambria County Courthouse was outfitted with metal detectors, 
a harsh modern contrast to the stately building that was designed to look like the U.S. Capitol with a dome made out of imported French glass. Because no one had access to metal detectors back then, the county had to borrow them from TWA, Trans World Airlines, one of the major air carriers at the time. But more than the metal detectors, it was the officers with long guns posted everywhere that revealed just how intense the security concerns were. It was really high security, and rightfully so. I mean, you, you had at that point, you know, six murder victims. Reporter Bruce Mowdy remembers being outside the courthouse one day when he was covering the case for the daily local news. I have my camera taking some photographs of the courthouse itself. And as I'm doing this, I can still feel the rifle right on the back of my neck. It was a state policeman who thought I was getting information to give to the Johnsons to help them escape. Bruce knew most of the officers who worked in Chester County, but he didn't know the security detail in Cambria County. And this guy didn't know him either. Bruce told him he was a reporter. Still, he got marched at gunpoint to see Judge Sugarman. And I remember going into Sugarman's chambers and you know, the state policeman there, and he's got my camera and he's got the gun. And, and I said, Judge, tell him what's going on. And uh, I remember Judge Sugarman thanking the state policeman for his duty and vigilance, but Bruce was a reporter, it was okay. That moment is still vivid in Bruce's mind, as is the memory of the rifle pressing into his neck, even today. I can feel it. Security outside the courtroom was intense. Inside the courtroom, too. You wanted to get in the courtroom as a spectator, as a member of the press. You were there 15 minutes beforehand. You were screened, and you were put in your seat, and you were told you do not move. Not to go talk to your friends, not to go make a phone call, not to go to the bathroom. My father said Judge Sugarman was a tall, imposing figure and was intimidating to those who didn't know him. My dad knew him pretty well. I always called him Shuggy when we weren't in the courtroom. While security was clearly important to Judge Sugarman, my father says the judge was also concerned about optics. He would say to the police, I don't want any guns visible in my courtroom. So. In the entrance to the courtroom, double doors, but two sets of double doors, separated by maybe six feet. So they would bring the prisoners, the Johnston brothers, into the first set of doors, shotguns loaded, long guns loaded, and then unhandcuffed, and then you'd bring them in and, and sit them down. You know, unconsciously, when you put somebody in shackles, or in handcuffs, and you march them in front of a jury, psychologically that says to a juror, they're guilty. So that's why Judge Sugarman was very, very careful to avoid any of that kind of impression in front of the jury. I would eventually see that courtroom in Cambria County when it came time for closing arguments. 
My parents flew me there on the small plane used to fly witnesses back and forth to the trial from Chester County. While I enjoyed writing, I wasn't a journalist yet, taking it all in, absorbing every detail, but I do have a memory of how the courtroom made me feel. It was huge, with high ceilings, and it was old, regal. It reminded me of a theater. I grew up performing in community theater and school productions. Looking around this ornate room was exciting. Even though there was no curtain, I was pretty sure a show was taking place here. And I was right. And there were officers everywhere, a sea of blue uniforms lining the audience and the balcony in the rotunda, which looked down on the courtroom. It was like an amphitheater. The bench and council table were down sort of in a well. It would remind you of the Coliseum or something. And in a way, what was happening in this courtroom wasn't all that different from what happened in a Coliseum. It was a duel, a fight for freedom. Unlike a traditional courtroom where the jury sits off to the side, The jury in this courtroom was in the center. The lawyers sat on either end of the jury box, facing each other. It was an unusual setup. This meant that as attorneys argued their points, they had to kind of circle the jury like warriors, fighting for their moment to shine, to be heard, waiting for just the right time to pounce on their foes with their words instead of weapons. And part of that pageantry was the security that always flanked the prosecutors. We always were escorted to the courtroom. There were, from time to time, members of the Johnston family in the audience. The Johnstons attended the trial led by their matriarch, Louise, along with the brothers' siblings and spouses. Louise was 68 and frail-looking, with a shock of red hair. But looks can be deceiving she was still very much in charge of the Johnston clan, according to prosecutors. It's easy to forget that these guys had a family. Heck, that they were a family. And to take down this family, the prosecution would have to build a case with what they would admit was not the ideal strategy. Without physical evidence tying the gang to the crimes, or modern-day things like surveillance video, GPS tracking, and DNA profiling, the prosecution was going to have to use an approach that wasn't very palatable. You're not dealing with priests or rabbis who are witnessing these events. You're dealing with bums and criminals and whatnot. And so you have to make deals. This was a complicated strategy. It involved using witnesses with criminal pasts, questionable motives, and clear culpability in the crimes. Were they testifying out of fear or revenge? Were they being truthful? Could the prosecution put a terrifying cast of characters on the witness stand to put an even more terrifying gang of brothers behind bars? The snitch tells a story. Do you accept the story? No. You only accept the story if you can corroborate it. The prosecution makes its case after the break. 
On average, people spend over a third of their life sleeping, yet most sleep disorders go undiagnosed. I'm Megan Gigling, General Manager of Parkway Sleep Health Centers. Sleep struggles left untreated can lead to health problems and have a serious effect on your quality of life. We've served the Triangle for 20 years. Let us help you get the sleep you've been dreaming of. If you're in need of a sleep study, a knowledgeable doctor, CPAP machine, or supplies, Parkway has you covered. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit parkwaysleep.com. Sound sleep, sound health. Jake, I'm getting worried. My house hunt's taking longer than expected. We've made so many offers and keep losing out. You could really use the JAG Advantage. What's the JAG Advantage? The Jim Allen Group, number one real estate team in the state since 1996 with the largest inventory of home sites in the Triangle, 11,000. And they rep more than 65 communities. The Jim Allen Group? Oh, I get it. The JAG Advantage. Score with the Jim Allen Group at thejagadvantage.com. Equal housing opportunity. Bruce Johnston Jr. would be the first witness on the stand for the prosecution on February 11, 1980. Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Julia Cass described him as pale, with long blonde curls, dressed in a white ski sweater and looking down as he spoke. He described the ambush in graphic detail, explaining how the bullets tore through his body. Junior said, quote, it stunned me, dazed me, and that he staggered around a little bit and then fell back into the car. Junior also revealed the reason he turned on his father, on his family, saying, quote, I was mad. I was mad about Jimmy Sampson and my father. They raped my girlfriend. I first learned about it in jail. Robin wrote me a letter. Robin said she was at a friend's house, and my old man and Sampson picked her up under pretense. He went on to say, quote, They bet her $100 she couldn't drink so much of a bottle of whiskey. She woke up in a motel room without any clothes on. In addition to Junior's testimony, the state's case would rely largely on snitches. And like Junior, they too could have ulterior motives for testifying. We had a theme throughout this entire investigation of you never take the word of the the snitch, the bum, the criminal at face value. You take it only in terms of what you can back up of what you can corroborate. Prosecutor Bill Lamb explained to the jury that they had dozens of other witnesses who would corroborate every detail of what the snitches testified to down to their fast food receipts. Remember Ricky Mitchell, the guy who admitted to killing a member of the Kitty Gang, Wayne Sampson, to being at the landfill when Jimmy Sampson was killed, and to helping plan the ambush on Junior and Robin Miller. And Leslie Dale, the guy who admitted to killing Gary Crouch and Jackie Bain. Well, that's who Bill and Dolores were building their case around. We had, you know, the two main snitches. That would be Ricky and Leslie. Plus Jimmy Griffin. You heard from Jimmy. He called himself James Disco Griffin in the last episode. He was on the periphery. He was involved in the 
thefts and whatnot, but also was not a killer. And we knew that, and we promoted him to the jury as someone who could be believed because he wasn't a killer. But you did have to make deals with people. That's the nature of the business. Okay, so here are the deals Bill and the prosecution team made with Leslie Dale, Ricky Mitchell, and James Griffin. Leslie was initially offered a deal where he would not be prosecuted in the Jackie Bain murder as long as he didn't kill any of the victims in the Johnston case. But then Leslie lied about killing Gary Crouch, saying Bruce Sr. had pulled the trigger when it was really him. So the original deal was rescinded, and Leslie was sentenced to 10 to 40 years in prison instead. Ricky was initially given a deal for 10 to 40 years in return for his truthful testimony. But once he admitted to killing a member of the Kitty Gang, prosecutors also rescinded his deal, and he was sentenced to life in prison. James didn't have a deal, per se, when Norman and David went to trial. But ultimately, he was given immunity in return for his testimony and placed into the Witness Protection Program. Again and again in the courtroom, Judge Leonard Sugarman would warn the jury that the snitches were, quote, corrupt and polluted sources of information because they had participated in the crimes. He urged jurors to make their own judgments about these witnesses' credibility on the stand. And prosecutors had their hands full in prepping the snitches for the trial, especially Ricky Mitchell. Dolores Troiani gave an opening statement right after Bill's, where she warned the jury about what they would hear. She described Ricky as a killer and said, quote, Your patience will be tried. He is difficult to understand. Former state police detective Tom Cloud remembers being on pins and needles as Ricky testified. We used to always say, you're building your case with matchsticks. You know what I mean? It can, it can go south in a big way, you know, at any time. And there was no weaker or shakier matchstick than somebody like Ricky Mitchell. You know, he had some mental issues, some medical issues. Reporter Bruce Mowdy still has vivid memories of Ricky on the stand. One testimony he gave, and Dolores Troiani was questioning him. And I asked him what color a certain car was. Asked him about the color of a car or a make of a car, and he didn't recall it. And he said, I'll get back to you. And like six questions later. About three minutes later, after a number of other questions. He yells out. Red. Red. Because it you know, kind of hit in his mind. And to my horror, I knew that he was answering the question from six times before. Ricky, who in many ways was the star witness because he knew so much about all the murders, first took the stand on February 12, 1980, the second full day of testimony. He testified that he helped Bruce Sr. and David Johnston lead the three boys to their deaths and their grave in Chad's Ford, a grave that he helped them dig. He didn't know them by name, calling them boys A. B, and C on the stand. He admitted to shooting and killing Wayne Sampson, 
Boise. After he said, David handed him a gun and told him that he had no choice. On the witness stand, he said he exchanged no words with Boise, even though he initially misfired and Wayne asked him if the gun was real. Ricky testified, quote, I didn't have time to discuss anything with him. I fired two shots in his head. Ricky also admitted in his testimony to being at the Lanchester landfill and helping lure Jimmy Sampson to the spot where Ricky said Norman shot and killed him. When asked on the stand why he went along with this ruse to kill Sampson, he said, quote, they were eliminating people and I didn't want to be eliminated. And finally, he confessed to helping plan the ambush of Bruce Jr. and Robin Miller. According to his testimony, he sat under the cloak of darkness in the cornfield for three nights with David and Norman near Robin's farmhouse in Oxford, trying to figure out the best way to attack. The brothers, he said, both wanted to break into the farmhouse and just get it done. But Ricky thought this seemed like a risky idea. When it rained on the third night of surveillance, Ricky said he'd had enough. He was feeling sick and didn't want to do it anymore. So, instead, he lined up the alibi for Big Bruce. On the fourth night of the stakeout, Ricky and Bruce Sr. went to a bar, 25 miles away, called Mr. T's. Ricky testified that he lined up women to hang out with them and to be their alibi witnesses. Ricky and Bruce Sr. left a very memorable $100 tip. Ricky and Leslie would be recalled to the stand many times during the trial to testify about specific moments in the timeline of the multiple murders. On February 14, 1980, Leslie Dale took the stand for the first time in the trial. He admitted to being a hired hitman, and according to Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Julia Cass, he described the details surrounding the murders in a matter-of-fact tone. Leslie testified that Norman told him that Jimmy Johnston was, quote, still gurgling when they, quote, chucked him in the hole. In a brief moment of humanity, Leslie told the jury how when he was with Jimmy Johnston the night before the murders, he tried to convince him to leave the motel and go somewhere safe. Somewhere his stepfather couldn't find him. He said on the stand, quote, I didn't want to see him get killed. Leslie testified that he didn't participate in the Kitty Gang murders because he feared he would end up in the hole with the others, saying in court, quote, I didn't care to die that day. And Leslie even threw Ricky Mitchell under the bus during his testimony, saying, quote, Mitchell was Bruce's robot. He would have done anything, Bruce told him. In a weird way, the two snitches had become rivals during the trial, vying to see who was more important to the prosecution's case. The prosecution team had the tough task of keeping Leslie and Ricky happy during the trial so they wouldn't freak out and refuse to testify. 
So they were kept at a motel in Cambria County, where they were closely guarded around the clock by officers. During the trial, Ricky asked the officers who were watching him for bananas and peanut butter on a daily basis. State policeman Gabe Bola remembered Ricky wanting Pepsi and a popcorn machine for his motel room. Almost everyone, including Dolores Troiani, remembers how particular Leslie was about ordering his breakfast at the motel, how he called room service and asked for runny eggs, burnt bacon, and crisp toast. The woman taking the order told him she couldn't do this. He said, quote, why not? You did it yesterday. It was a 24-7 job. I mean, they developed this rivalry. You know, you're spending too much time with him. You're not spending enough time with me. And they were like two kids. And and they were constantly, I'm not going to testify. And, and You had to keep them happy. You had to keep them happy within the limits of the law. Reporter Bruce Mowdy remembers that Leslie seemed to think of himself as a funny guy. And he also thought he was a ladies' man. I remember him blowing kisses to Dolores Troiani and the women reporters in the room, and his sense of humor was a little off. He sent Judge Sugarman a subscription to Playboy magazine. I was authorized by mail to be a reverend that I could marry people, and I had a little card. I'm sure Leslie was the one that instigated that. But Leslie also came across as a shrewd criminal with no morals. When Norman's defense attorney questioned him about Gary Crouch's murder, asking, quote, you killed a man for $3,000, Leslie simply answered, quote, that is correct, sir. Investigator Tom Cloud sat with the attorneys at the prosecution table during the trial to help them navigate the dozens of witnesses' times, dates, and locations. He remembers watching Leslie Dale testify. He was being questioned, and and apparently he had had inappropriate contact with a female. And they were trying to bring out in cross-examination that he had, uh, um, I guess they were trying to say he raped this woman. And uh, Leslie's come back, oh, man, I didn't rape her. I just slapped her around a little bit. That was his mentality. The prosecution didn't shy away from how reprehensible these guys' behavior was. Abuse of women, sexual, physical, and emotional, was a disturbing trend among many members of the Johnston gang. Prosecutors knew the snitches weren't ideal witnesses, so that guiding principle get the corroborating evidence to support everything they were saying was key. Then came the testimony of the significantly more ideal snitch, the one Dolores called, quote, the crux of the case, who had a lot of information to share and had not participated in any of the murders. James Disco Griffin took the stand for the prosecution on February 18th, 1980. He testified that David and Norman made light of the ambush and the death of Robin Miller, saying, quote, they didn't seem to be very serious. 
they were laughing. He testified that Bruce Sr. was very upset that David and Norman had failed to kill Junior, and that Sr. was also upset that his son had turned out to be a snitch. Griffin repeated Sr.'s words on the witness stand, saying, quote, If I had known my son was going to be a rat, I would have flushed him down the toilet. James said in court that the reason he agreed to testify against the Johnstons was, quote, I didn't want to be charged with crimes I didn't commit or end up dead. Griffin said he didn't help dig the grave for the kitty gang, but his testimony about buying the shovels with the Johnstons was just one more piece of corroborating evidence along with all the others that the prosecution team was using to stitch their case together for the jury. We start with one witness. And we separated the murders so that it was easier to understand. So I, I think I called Leslie and, and Ricky to the stand maybe three or four different times. And so Leslie would get up there and he'd talk about one murder. And then the next witnesses would be the hotel clerk, the person who sold the shovels. The person who sold the shovels. That's how they approached it. One tiny building block at a time one corroborating witness at a time. I mean, I played a, a role that corroborated what Ricky Mitchell was saying and pretty pretty much nailed down his testimony. I remember it sort of like as if it was yesterday. Some things stand out in your mind and some things don't. This one does because it was so odd. He was just so, so, so creepy. The woman describing Ricky Mitchell here is Lisa Harrington. Lisa now lives in Australia, but grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania, not far from the Delaware state line. In August 1978, she had just graduated from high school and was working as a housekeeper at the Howard Johnson's Motor Lodge in Newark, Delaware, where Bruce Sr. had rented the gang a room. It was about 30 minutes away from Robin Miller's house. Lisa's bizarre encounter with Ricky ended up being crucial to the investigators. Here's how she remembers it. I knocked on the door and I said, maid, like you always do. And he sort of growled, you know, come in. And I opened the door and it was dark in there, like all the shades were drawn and everything was dark. I was like, do you want the room cleaned? And I was thinking, please say no. And he said, no, just get, you know, take care of the trash. And this is what really stuck out to me because I went, oh, and he said, oh, oh, what's wrong with you? You got a pain? What's wrong with you? And I said, no, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'll just get the towels. And so I turned to my right because the bathroom is off to the right in the rooms. And I opened the door, like I pushed it open a bit. And in those days, you had those glaring red heat lamps that heat the, I don't know what they were used for back then. It was the 70s. We did weird things. But they had these red heat lamps. And the room was muddy, like so muddy. I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to get this clean, but not today because he didn't want it clean. And I, up on top of the bathroom door, there was like a plank of some sort, like a bit of wood. And then the shoes on top of the plank, right under the heat lamp drying out, they were caked in mud and they were the red clay, like from where I grew up, like, you know, they call it red clay country up there. And so I thought, geez, that's weird. It's no clay here. But there was red clay in that cornfield in Pennsylvania, 
next to Robin Miller's house. Something absolutely wasn't right. This guy was just like planted in the bed and and really growly and I was really scared. I thought, well, what am I going to do? I mean, you always keep the door open and you put the maid cart in front of the door so people don't come in. But I didn't put the maid cart in front of the door because I was like, oh, I didn't get out of this place. Lisa says she got out of there quick. Months later, when the police found out from Ricky where he, David, and Norman met up with Bruce Sr. while they were staking out Robin Miller's home, they came by the hotel and asked Lisa if she had seen any of these men. When they held up a picture of Ricky Mitchell, she immediately knew who they were talking about and told them what she saw, confirming Ricky's story. Other employees there also identified gang members, including Bruce Johnston Sr., as coming and going from the motel. They, along with Lisa, would be called to testify in the trials. I was a bit oblivious. I don't know what I was doing. I was 17, I guess. I just, I didn't really think about it too much. I probably should have. Lisa might not have been too concerned, but she says her parents were really worried about her safety. The Johnston gang were pretty mad at anybody who was working to put them away. Lisa and her mother got a police escort to the trial in Cambria County to keep her safe. They were put up for the night in a hotel because it wasn't exactly clear when she'd get called to testify. She finally did get on the stand late the next afternoon and had to face the Johnstons. I'll never forget the death stares they were giving me. I just had to not look at them. Lisa was quite shaken in court as she verified the statements Ricky had made to her when she entered his motel room shortly after the ambush on Robin and Junior. And as much as being on the stand affected Lisa, something that happened right before she testified also had a profound impact on her. I had to wait down in the witness pen. So when I'm down there in the pen, there was a girl who was uh, Robin Miller's best friend, and or uh, she said she was Robin Miller's best friend, and she had actually meant to um, go to Hershey Park with them that night, and she just decided not to go that night. And she just kept saying, like, I could have been there, like, I could have been there. I remember thinking, like, yeah, how horrifying that is, and that stuck with me all these years, the serendipity of a single choice that, you know, changes your changes your life. When we come back, the defense makes its case. Are you struggling to get a good night's sleep? Look no further than Parkway Sleep. For 20 years, we have been your locally owned and operated sleep center. I'm Brandon Giggling, president of Parkway Sleep Health Centers. Did you know that people are waiting a staggering six to eight months for a sleep study at other sleep labs? At Parkway, we understand the importance of your sleep needs. That's why we offer openings within weeks, not months, saving you time. Don't let sleepless nights take over your life. Visit us today at parkwaysleep.com. Parkway Sleep Health Centers. Sound sleep, sound health. Jake, I'm getting worried. My house hunt's taking longer than expected. We've made so many offers and keep losing out. 
You could really use the JAG Advantage. What's the JAG Advantage? The Jim Allen Group, number one real estate team in the state since 1996 with the largest inventory of home sites in the triangle, 11,000. And they rep more than 65 communities. The Jim Allen Group? Oh, I get it. The JAG Advantage. Score with the Jim Allen Group at thejagadvantage.com. Equal housing opportunity. As the intense trial of David and Norman Johnston continued, it seemed inevitable that there were going to be some scares. Assistant District Attorney Dolores Troiani remembers one morning. We had gotten to the courthouse really early and we were standing by the window watching them bring the cars in with the defendants. And all of a sudden we hear this crackling that was, you know, sounded like gunshots. The sound ended up being a firecracker. And there were other moments. Prosecutor Bill Lamb says a police dog found an explosive device left outside the courthouse. Luckily, no one was injured. Someone was interrupted cutting a screen to a window near where David and Norman were being held. Cars pulled into the parking lot of the courthouse at night with no lights on, like they were surveilling it. Amid these heightened tensions, the defense began its case on March 3, 1980, after three weeks of testimony from the state. The two brothers, David and Norman, were represented by different attorneys. John LaChelle represented David. LaChelle declined to be interviewed for this series. And Larry Goldberg represented Norman. And they had their work cut out for them. The Johnson gang was synonymous with the worst criminals in the world. That's how the newspapers played it. That's what we were up against. It's clear that the county district attorney and the state police all believed that these fellows were guilty. And I think that that permeated the room. The jurors realized how staunch the prosecution was in this conviction. Back in 1980, Larry used some pretty intense language to describe the prosecution. He said the DA's office had a, quote, ongoing vendetta against the brothers. Bruce Sr. said that vendetta stemmed from investigators' belief that the Johnstons were somehow involved in the murders of the Kennett Square police officers in 1972. Larry made a motion before the trial started to have Prosecutor Bill Lamb pulled from the case, saying that he intended to call Bill as a witness to testify about how unreliable Ricky Mitchell was. Apparently, Bill had given Ricky another deal back in 1975 in an unrelated case where charges were dropped in return for his testimony. In other words, Ricky seemed to be in the habit of making deals, and Larry didn't think his information was trustworthy. Judge Leonard Sugarman denied this defense motion and others, but he did agree to give the defense team more money to hire a private investigator. Larry says the money, though, wasn't nearly enough. And he thought of their team as the underdog. It was a difficult thing because not only did they have 
the prosecution, the county, as I said, the state troopers and the FBI on their side, they also had the judge on their side. I don't think there's any question about it. Every time they had a legal question, Judge Sugarman, who was a trial judge, was in there giving them good advice on what to do. To be clear, Larry doesn't know what the judge's intentions were, but this is his impression. We can't get Judge Sugarman's perspective on this. He passed away in 1997. Judges aren't supposed to give any attorney's advice, whether they're on the bench in the courtroom or talking to them in their chambers. It's not permitted under judicial standards in almost every state. But in a small town, well, the legal community is also small and close-knit. Judges see the same attorneys in the courtroom day in and day out. And because of this, there's a collegial nature to their relationships. So it's hard to say how that may play into a judge's decisions during a trial. Larry Goldberg was up against a lot. This was just one of many obstacles, he says, the defense faced while trying this case. It was a terrific challenge. It was a terrific challenge to find any argument you could make on their behalf. And the way the prosecution tried the case was to show that through circumstantial evidence, including the testimony of Mitchell and Leslie Dale, there was nobody else who was saying that the Johnsons pulled the trigger on the boys before they went into the hole. The defense's strategy was to place the responsibility of all the crimes on Ricky Mitchell and Leslie Dale, while the prosecution maintained Ricky and Leslie were not capable of orchestrating such crimes. One major point argued by the defense was that Leslie had an injury on his arm that they believed came from a gunshot. Their theory was that he was grazed by a bullet in the crossfire during the ambush, and a Philadelphia doctor testified that he believed the injury was from a bullet. Leslie testified that on the night of the ambush, the injury the defense said was from a bullet was really a cut from snagging his arm on a fence while he was stealing a truck. Leslie did admit to watching Jimmy Johnston for Bruce Sr. the night before three members of the Kitty Gang were murdered. But he said he didn't have anything to do with killing them. He also said he didn't have anything against the kids because he hadn't committed any crimes with them. So they had nothing on him. Ricky had already admitted to his role in the Kitty Gang murders. He had also admitted to helping plan the ambush and to surveilling Robin Miller's house for three nights from the cornfield with the Johnston brothers. But all the testimony from the snitches couldn't trump the main event, the murder suspects themselves taking the stand in their own defense. On March 5, 1980, both Norman and David Johnston testified on their own behalf. Daily local news reporter Bruce Mowdy, who was in the courtroom for the testimony, said, quote, They bore little resemblance to the cold-blooded murderers depicted in recent days by the prosecution. Mowdy described them as polite 
and soft-spoken. David, who was dressed neatly in a camel-colored leisure suit, according to Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Julia Cass, took the stand first. He testified that he overheard Leslie Dale telling Bruce Sr. that they needed to get rid of Junior, but that Sr. had said he didn't want his son hurt, just out of town until the heat was off. On the day before the ambush, David testified that he and Norman went to the Delaware Park racetrack and then met up with Norman's wife, Susan, and a woman named Beryl Heaton for dinner at Hugo's Inn in Kennett Square. He said they then went to visit their mother, Louise Johnston, at her home nearby, and that Norman and his wife were back at their house in bed by 11 o'clock. David said he sat in his car in front of his mother's house talking to Beryl until 5 o'clock in the morning on August 30th. The women corroborated this story. Norman testified next. Cass described him as having a boyish amiability. He said that he believed the kitty gang had been sent out of town to avoid the grand jury. But when he talked to Ricky Mitchell, it became clear to him that this was not the case. He testified, quote, I told Ricky the boys would be picked up soon and brought back. Ricky said, no. I said, do you know these boys are dead? Ricky said, I don't think so. I know so. David and Norman both said they weren't there when any of these murders happened, that they barely knew the victims and therefore had no motive. Both brothers said they couldn't remember where they were the night the members of the Kitty Gang were killed. On March 10, 1980, the matriarch of the family, David and Norman's mother, Louise, took the stand to defend her sons. She was a thin, red-haired woman dressed in a pantsuit who was visibly nervous. She admitted that she initially told police David was home sick in bed with a stomach bug the night of the ambush, not in her driveway in the car talking to Beryl Heaton. She explained this inconsistency by saying she had spoken to investigators so many times and was confused about what she had said to whom. She testified the officers, quote, made me sick mentally and physically. She went on to say, quote, I don't like talking to any of the police. They only lie on you. There was talk of Bruce Sr. taking the stand to defend his brothers. He was even brought from the jail to the courthouse in anticipation of this happening. Judge Sugarman held a hearing outside the presence of the jury to vet his testimony. But after Sr. refused to answer questions about the facts of the case, continually invoking his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination, the judge decided Sr. had nothing to add to the trial and denied the defense team's request to offer him up as a witness. Sr. would be tried separately later in 1980 because prosecutors felt like he was the most culpable brother. They didn't want a jury to waffle on Sr.'s guilt because they weren't sure about David and Norman's guilt. So David and Norman's fates were intertwined with one another for better or for worse. 
In the midst of a trial featuring two brothers being tried for the same crimes, it was easy to forget that they were actually individuals. Norman could be like an ordinary uh, young man. You know, you wouldn't take him for being a killer. Norman's lawyer, Larry Goldberg, described how Norman would later send Larry a get-well card when he was recovering from surgery. And so it begs the question, what if Norman had taken a different path from his brothers? I think about that a lot. And some say he almost did. Investigator Tom Cloud and prosecutor Dolores Troiani remember trying to turn Norman into a witness for the state early on. You know, I just said to him, you know, that uh, he was the tag-along. You know what I mean? If, if what we were told was true, he was made to shoot Jimmy Sampson just so that he was a part of it. I mean, he's involved in it up to his neck. There's no question about it. But when you're building a case, you can never have too many witnesses or too much information. And, and really, you know, if somebody turns away from a criminal life, there has to be a turning point. He was going to turn. And we went down to see him because he had told the troopers that he was going to, he wanted to talk to us and seemed to be just as, as much afraid of David as, uh, as he should have been. I think David would have killed him in an instant. But Dolores and Tom said Norman didn't turn after all. They don't know if it was fear over what David and Bruce Sr. might do to him or some kind of continued misguided loyalty to the family. And if it was fear that kept him from teaming up with the prosecution, he wasn't the only one in the family feeling this. Just as the trial was coming to a close on March 11, 1980, Carol Johnston, Bruce Sr.'s second wife, finally agreed to testify against her brothers-in-law. Carol had been staying at the Starlight Motel with the defense team and members of the Johnston family when she was sent to the hospital after she began acting irrationally. A few days later, when she was released, she contacted the prosecution team and told them she wanted to testify. But then, on the day she was scheduled to take the stand, she ran out of the courtroom and refused to cooperate. She backed out at the last minute, and I think um, she and I actually had sort of a little tugging match in the hallway. Um, and what happened was that some of the relatives showed up and just intimidated her. Eventually, the state flew Carol back to Chester County on the small plane with me and a detective named Jeff Gordon. So, yes, I was flying on a small plane with the gang leader's wife. Even at 13, I understood enough to know that this didn't seem like a good idea. It didn't feel safe. What if someone wanted to take her out and I happened to be there? I remember that Carol was a mess in the back of the plane, looking stressed out and very anxious after what had just happened in the courtroom. Detective Gordon assured me that I was safe. I hoped he was right. I didn't really have a choice but to trust him. But before I headed home, 
I would get the chance to hear the final act of the show that had played out in the courtroom. It was time for the attorneys to make their closing arguments. After more than five weeks of testimony and more than 200 witnesses combined from both sides, it had all come down to this, the final arguments to help the jury connect the dots and make their decisions. In the trial, my father called the biggest case of his life. I was there, reams of paper, preparing my closing argument. So my dad, Bill Lamb, had all these documents spread around the hotel room the night before his closing. I was there, too, doing my homework. And I remember this well. One of the detectives came in to see me and said, Ben Franklin from the New York Times wants to see you, wants to talk to you. I said, well, why? You know, why? He said, he really needs to talk to you. He has to share something with you. Well, you know, here I am, local lawyer from Chester County. Somebody from the New York Times wants to talk. Okay. And he comes down. And he said, look, I, he said, you've done a great job. And I want you to know I have tremendous respect and admiration for you. But I have to tell you, Mr. Lamb, you're going to lose this case. Next time, Norman and David's verdict. Bruce Sr. and Ricky both speak from jail. And finally, after so many years, Bruce Sr. faces a judge and jury. I'm Amanda Lamb, and this is The Killing Month, August 1978. Breaking news, The Designery can give you the kitchen of your dreams. I'm Dana Merrill, the owner of The Designery in North Raleigh. And I am True Merrill. I am the project manager. The Designery is a lovely kitchen, bath, and closet remodeling company. We do pretty much any of the utility spaces in your house. If you want to store things in your cabinets, if you want to work on things on your countertops, if you want to uh, have a floor that can get wet or muddy, we're the place to help you fix your home up. We are the Designery North Raleigh, located at 3030 Wake Forest Road in the Holly Park Plaza. We would love to see you or visit our website at thedesignery.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.